Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. I'm Alana Rangi. We humans think we're pretty smart. After all, we're the only species who has highways and museums and who's mastered the art of space travel. But have we maxed out on our brain's potential? Neuroscientist Richard Restek does not think so. He combines cutting-edge research with brain-tuning exercises to try and get our brains to work more effectively. From using sleep to boost creativity, to eating with the hopes of stimulating certain neurons, Restek has plenty of ideas. This week, he's paired with the writer Susan Orlean. She's a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of The Orchid Thief, which inspired the movie Adaptation. They discussed how we can better use our brains at the Rubin Museum of Art's Brainwave Festival. Well, it's a wonderful opportunity to be here, and I'm very excited about it. Um, I have connections with New York. I'm not from New York, but I took training here in medicine and psychiatry, and I also did some work with WNET, so New York is very special to me. Um, it's also wonderful to be here with Susan Orlean, whose book, The Orchid Thief, is on my shelf of favorite books. So it's a wonderful evening, and I'm happy to thank you all for coming here. I was thinking about how we might start this, because the brain is just such a you know, tremendous subject. And I thought, well, why not just reduce it down to four images, four pictures, and that, well, not, they're not pictures, they're concepts. And I thought, let's just take a few minutes and look at these images, and I think we can reach an understanding of what we're probably going to be talking about at some point. You just can't help but talk about these, these particular issues. The brain is the ultimate dialectic, or dialectical organ, if you will. I mean, it's localized. A certain part of the brain controls my right hand as I'm talking to you now. Uh, certain parts have to do with speech, with seeing, hearing, yet it's all synthesized. We also have differences between left and right brain. Left brain is part with language. Right brain is art. Each lobe is concerned with specific processes, but it's also holistically organized, functions as a whole. And of course, that's the unity of our experience. You don't separate the things I'm saying from uh, what I'm, as I move my hand. You see it as one total entity. The primary cortex is linked with the association cortices to synthesize and elaborate our experience. So that's why we have a unified experience. Philosophers call it the binding problem. I'm not sure I can explain how we do this, but we are able to do and take in all these various sensory modalities, plus the internal world, what we're thinking about right now. Plus, as my speech, as I'm talking to you, the words go out there in the form of electromagnetic waves stimulate your ears, go up into the auditory cortex, and so forth. Neurons link with each other just as it does at a higher level. So that's the thing, that the, the dialectics, which we'll, we'll certainly talk about. Basic brain facts, three to six months, we have the maximum brain cell number. Just think about it. We have more brain cells when we're in our mother's womb than at any other time during our life. Seven months to the first two years, the numbers decrease, but the connections increase. Now. 40% of the synapses generated in infancy are lost by adulthood. Now, that's a strange kind of a thing. If you imagine a car that you take in 
somewhere, and every year, a mechanic would take a part out of it, and it would work better. We can't really think of anything that fits that particular model. The human brain, however, has fewer parts, works better, we get smarter, and so forth. The brains of animals within rich environments contain 25% more synapses, so that's the real hint. Our experiences mold our brain. What we learn, those things that we're interested in, that's how our brain is integrated and synthesized. Um, the total brain volume peaks at 11 in girls, 15 in boys. Maximum weight by early adulthood, and then it drops off by about 10% between early adulthood and the end. We are losing cells, but it doesn't matter. Are we losing 50,000 a day? Who knows? Maybe, but we've got so many. We've got 100 billion nerve cells with a million billion synapses. These are the kind of numbers they throw around in Washington in dollars. Well, I mean, they were talk <laughs> talking now about synapses in brains. The functional changes are there over the lifetime. Now, the last slide has to do with the concept that the brain is altering from the time we're born until however long we live. And here's a couple examples. Kittens deprived of vision in the first three months grow up with permanent visual impairments. Sort of the same thing happens in humans if a child has strabismus and one eye doesn't focus and you don't correct it, they will lose vision in that eye. Songbirds that don't hear their native sounds cannot produce those sounds. Monkeys raised in isolation grow up with emotional problems. So it's not just cognitive stuff, it's also emotional. Perfect pitch in humans occurs only in musicians who started training before age seven. And finally, in order to speak a foreign language without an accent, the child must speak the language's phonemes by puberty. So that's another example of the brain being modifiable. And we're going to talk about how modifiable can be throughout the whole life cycle. I just wanted to give you those slides as sort of an example of where we, we might go, depending on your interests. I suddenly feel my brain shrinking as we're <laughs> sitting here. I'm also concerned that if it only weighs three pounds, that's not a good place to go for weight loss. Right, that's right. <laughs> well, actually, if the brain grew at the same rate, or put it, put it this way, if the rest of the body grew at the same rate that the brain did during the first year, starting from conception, so in the womb, and the, the child at three months would be about 170 pounds. So wow. the brain is multiplying at a tremendous rate during those first few months of existence. So. <laughs> I, I had mentioned to Tim part of the reason this subject is so particularly interesting to me is that I have a five-year-old son and I have an 87-year-old mom and I'm seeing their brains in, you know, absolute contrast yes. um, with my mom losing short-term memory and, and you know, I'm, I'm wondering what, you know, how much of who we are and who we think we are is actually a physical and biological fact. Um, the nature of, uh, you know, if you begin losing the ability, for instance, to remember things, and, uh, you know, how much of our soul is actually just this big cellular blob in our heads? Well, it makes it sad because when you look at people like with Alzheimer's, for instance, I mean, the saddest part about it is they begin to lose their personality, if you will, so that the memory is associated with the actual personality. It's also associated with creativity. If you take somebody who has Alzheimer's, not only do they not remember certain things, but they're also not able to imagine. So if you say to them, 
Just imagine us having lunch tomorrow at our favorite restaurant. Well, they really can't do that. You say, well, you know, remember the famous restaurant, and you tell them, and they, they can't because the, it's actual, there's a linkage between memory and actually uh, what they call future memory, being able to look into and plan and things like that. So there's all this development that's lost as people lose brain cells in the older life, but, but it is a disease. We have to remember, Alzheimer's is an illness, and there's certain things that one can do to uh, make it less likely that you're going to get it, and that's sort of the kind of things we're going to talk about, about what you would do to try to keep it off. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I found your book fascinating. Thank and, you. Um, part, certainly the part of it that I was most drawn to, besides the, the sort of exercises to keep your brain limber, which <clears throat> I do think is uh, increasingly, you know, it's fascinating. You realize people who work and stay active mentally continue to stay active mentally. Um, but also the description of uh, creativity and how your brain organizes things mosaically rather than in a linear way. Yes, yes. Well, Madison Smart Bell, who'd be well known to you, the teaching creative writing in, in Baltimore, I mean, he talks about uh, using the modular system. I mean, if I say to you, well, tell me about your friend, give me some idea of what they were really like. You don't give me a linear production of, well, I first met them and we did this and we went there. You give me sort of impressionistic modular things, different things that happen at different times. And in other words, you're synthesizing them all creatively to, to give me some concept of what you think of this person. So we're all using the modular method all the time, but we think of it as a false one. We always jump to linear mm -hmm. things. And of course, creativity is, as you know from your writing and everything, is taking different things and trying to look at them in divergent ways. I actually was very reassured um, when you mentioned in the book that um, creativity, a large part of creativity looks like you're not doing anything. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right. I just thought, I knew that, yeah. I knew that. Um, how much can you shape your own brain? How much can you change? Is it hardwired? Is it something that you can actively, can you make yourself smarter? Can you just do better with what you've got? What does it mean to be smart, I guess? Well, first of all, you have no choice about changing your brain because what you're doing is modifying your brain instant by instant. For instance, you can take uh, a person who's blind and uses a cane, and they actually have the sensitive feeling at the tip of that cane that is even better than the tips of your fingers. In other words, they've actually, from using that, and they can feel and identify things. And you can develop the same sense as an Italian uh, researcher showed, a sighted person in a darkened room with a cane can learn to do this in about an hour. However, what happens, it disappears immediately. So that's how modifiable the brain is, it's just that short period of time that you're able to take on something like this. So the brain's changing all the time according to what you're doing and what your interests are or lack of interest. So you really don't have any you know, alternative. You said, can we change the brain? Uh, not only can you, but you, you are all the time. So every experience you have Absolutely. is is processed in a, an almost a physical way in your brain. It is, and, and, and it changes these networks and interconnections. And if you think about associations, I mean verbal associations, the richer they are, what we call cognitive complexity. Mm -hmm. And cognitive complexity means you know all kinds of details about things, and then you're able to link them with something else. 
I talk in the book a little bit about the magnificent obsession, where someone can get obsessed with a particular topic. And it's a good obsession. We, are, we all have obsessions. We're all a little bit obsessive-compulsive. Uh, but we turn it to our benefit by becoming really interested in a subject and concentrating on it. And those periods of time that we're kind of feeling down or depressed or sort of aimless and wandering, you go back to this topic. And soon you'll be knowing as much about it as somebody who's professionally trained. I've seen that before. I was in Egypt in an Egyptian uh, visit one time, and there was this fellow who knew as much about it as the guides. I mean, he really was terrific. And I, I said, well, what do you do? He was running a, a plastering company or something in Ohio. And I said, well, how did you learn all this? He said, I started reading it when I was 12 years old. He said, I've been fascinated, I would say obsessed, in a good way, mm -hmm. with, with Egyptian history. And he said, I just I go to these, read these books, go to these things. So there's an example of it. Now, but his brain was you know, well beyond anything anybody would have expected. You know, I've often wondered um, whether there is a physical component to emotional, say, trauma. Mm. Um, does your brain change if you've had a, a terrible emotional experience? Well, unfortunately, that's true. Um, I see a lot of patients who have come back from Afghanistan and Iraq, and yes, the answer is it's, it certainly has a very deleterious effect on them because the, the basic emotional system then is uh, uh, vulnerable to remembrances and uh, uh, revivals of painful memories. So our memory is sort of a, a double-edged sword. We want to keep it going, and sometimes we have trouble doing that, but sometimes the things we'd like to forget, we can't forget. Why is so, that? Well, that's the part of the emotion. You've, you've triggered this emotional circuit that's going. Well, is the circuit stronger because it was um, painful well, or, that, or intense? The frontal lobe. I mean, is it actually a biological difference that it's, it becomes a stronger nerve ending? Well, I don't think everyone is susceptible to getting PTSD, for instance, what we're talking about, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, there are differences in it and the backgrounds of people, but if anyone is sufficiently stressed, they will. I mean, there's this balance between the amygdala, which is the part of the brain right off the temporal lobe, which is the one that uh, handles emotions, processes emotions, at least when you initially encounter an emotional situation, and then the frontal lobe and prefrontal is the one that sort of modulates it, sort of dampens it down. And some people, for whatever reason, the frontal lobe is weakened. It can happen to anybody. Have too many drinks, the frontal lobe is the first affected and you're, suddenly your judgment is impaired and you become hyper-emotional and things like that and people can be violent and all these other things. So there's, you've varied this balance. But some people have variances in the balance from day one for mm. reasons we don't know, which is genetic, we think. You know, one of the most interesting books I think I ever read um, was listening to Prozac in part because he sort of raises the question of what is our personality if it can be altered, in this case through uh, antidepressants, but um, this whole idea of your, what we think of as this sort of diffuse thing, which is personality. Yes. And in fact, it's actually this very concrete thing. It's yes. a brain with the way the brain works that if you could, um, you know, I, I guess in a way it almost seems primitive. The, mm -hmm. the idea that who you are is actually a physical thing. It's mm -hmm. not this sort of more sophisticated notion that no. you have personality. Um, 
Well, that goes back to Descartes. That's Cartesianism. And he thought that there was the separate body and the mind were separate. And uh, you took care of one and, and the other was separate from it. We had that until recently when you talked about if you had a problem with uh, your emotions, you went to a psychiatrist. If you had epilepsy or migraine or something, you went to a neurologist and they never, that's what neuropsychiatry is a recognition that these two specialties are you know, linked because the brain and the mind are very much, I'm not gonna say they're one, it's complex how they're related, but they certainly are related. So that when you talk about somebody uh, being affected by the way their brain is constructed, I don't look upon that as something reductionist. I mean, all our other organs, I mean, we're not all capable of being uh, uh, long distance runners or boxers or anything else it may be because we have limitations of our physical structure, our endurance. So it's the same thing with the brain. And we just have to find out what it is that you do the best what your brain is uh, really constructed for, if you will. Constructed by yourself, however. I mean, you're the one mm -hmm. that made the decisions to, to take up certain interests and to leave others aside. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, actually, you just said something that I thought was oh. really interesting, um, that there's a difference between your brain and your mind. Yes. And maybe that's where we've begun. Um, it, maybe it's a matter of definition. But I know when I was a kid, I used to be slightly obsessed with this uh, idea of if you transplanted your brain into, you know, somebody needed a brain transplant, mm -hmm. what would they be? Would yeah. they be the brain or the body? And yeah, yeah. since I don't know that we'd be doing that anytime soon, we'll probably not be able to answer that question. But um, if you could do that, what, what would be the resulting entity? Would it be the... Really? the entity of the brain or the, the body? Well, it reminds me of a cartoon. I'm not sure I saw it in the New Yorker, but I saw it somewhere where there was a surgeon sitting beside a uh, patient in bed. And they were all wrapped up. The head was all wrapped up. And he said, uh, now I want to make sure that this operation, I know it was a problem for you and, and all that, but I, I think it's going to be successful. But I'm, I'm not really sure. And then he says, why am I saying all this? Because if you understood what I'm saying, you're a smart little doggy indeed. <laughs> So we don't know exactly, you know, there's the people talk about transferring parts of the body to a we, we could, but you're not going to be able to transplant a brain, which is yeah. your, your point there. <laughs> well, yeah, it's funny yeah. because obviously it, it's funny that the language over time about where your the center of your being is always your heart. Yes. And yet we transplant hearts pretty right. regularly, yes. but the idea of a brain transplant, and for that matter, you can reduce a person's body to their head and torso. I mean, unfortunately, there are people who've lost all their yes. limbs, but they're still that same person. Yes, yes. So somehow the language of what is the real heart of, see, I just did it by accident. Yeah. <laughs> what I mean is where is the essence of a person? It clearly is their, their brain and not in any other organ. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the Russell uh, one, told the story of somebody that wanted to uh, see Oxford University, and he, uh, I guess he wanted to go there, so he went there, and he said to see the School of Philosophy. They showed him philosophy, economics, uh, history, and all this, and at the end of the day, as he was getting on the bus, he said, well, but where's Oxford University? I mean, you know, it's the compendium of what he saw during the day, but there's no thing that exists for it. I mean, the mind, I think of it as something that we, a word, it's not a meaningless word, it's a very meaningful word. 
Uh, it's filled through our language, mindless, mindful. We use the word mindful a lot when talking about uh, Eastern studies. But I mean, you, you think about the fact that mind is something that uh, is not a thing, it's a composite concept that we have. Mm -hmm. It expresses, we say somebody's really, you know, good mind. Usually you're saying they're good brain. <laughs> right. But uh, in a way, you're also then taking into account um, the entirety of the person, their, yes. their experience, their presence in the world, their... Yes. Um, a fascinating book that I'm sure you've read, the book Genie. Mm -hmm. um, oh, yes. About a famous, quite tragic case. Terrible of a, case. A, a parents, girl oh, who was... Her father was insane, yeah. and her mom was uh, blind and mm -hmm. in fear of the father. I don't know if any of you have read it, but the, they never the spoke father to her. became mm -hmm. obsessed with the idea that the girl was possessed by the devil, mm. and she was raised from practically from birth in a room, left alone. They would shove food in for her, mm -hmm. and she lived that way till she was about six or seven when yeah. the mother escaped and took the girl. And she, her brain right. was, she could never learn to speak because she had, the only thing she'd ever heard were dogs barking right. and the sound of uh, like garbage men picking mm -hmm. up the trash in the backyard. Mm -hmm. Of course, she was a cause celeb in the scientific community yep. since you could never do this experiment ethically yes. uh, to basically raise someone with no stimulation, but she, could never speak, she could never, I mean, and it's hard to know, but her intelligence was measured and she was not mentally retarded, mm -hmm. but she couldn't do anything with her brain. Yeah. And what's the, what's the science behind that? Well, it gets back to that critical period slide I showed. I mean, you know, at a certain point, you need to hear human language. There's a famous story, I think Egyptian, as a matter of fact, the idea was what was the original language that Adam and Eve spoke, so it couldn't have been Egyptian, it had to have been some other group. They said, well, who, what did they speak? What language did they speak? So this king was interested in finding out, figuring, you know, we'll take a child, a peasant child, and no one will ever speak to it. It'll be fed and cared for and all that, but we'll never hear anyone speak. And then when it starts to talk, we'll know what Adam and Eve. Well, of course, the child didn't speak because you need to have these phonemes fed in. And of course, an infant is capable of speaking any language. If you take one that's uh, three or four months of age and put it in the, lying there in the bassinet, and let's say it's, a, it's an American, and there are two Koreans standing on one side, or J Japanese, and they're speaking Japan, Japanese, the, the, the child will move in a rhythm that fits the language. Whereas you later, mean just as a, as a baby? Yeah, as a, as a real, with oh, three months. It, the movements are linked with the language somehow. But then, of course, that's lost. I mean, because it doesn't hear Korean or doesn't hear Japanese on a regular basis. It's one of the reasons that uh, children, when they're younger, it's better that they uh, learn the language, you know, at that early age. I, I had an office manager one time who was uh, Cuban, and uh, she came up here and was married, and uh, her husband had the idea that he didn't want uh, the children to hear Spanish when they visited her, her parents. And the reason was that he thought that they would then speak English with an accent. So I tried to explain, no, it's not going to happen. I mean, there, he's going to speak both English and Spanish without an accent because the critical period is such that it's going to be embedded. In other words, the language part is going to be, the language part of the brain is going to in integrate 
both the Spanish phonemes and the English phonemes, and they won't intrude on each other. The reason when we learn another language after age seven or so is that we're using neurons that have already been sort of devoted to English. We're borrowing them now to use them for another language, and it's not quite right. So you never learn it in the same native way? Never, I never can, no, no. Well, that, that sort of raises the, the question of, um, is it all over by the time you're seven? It's all <laughs> downhill. For certain things, I mean, what we call this, <laughs> but it's a, it's a nice trade-off. <laughs> I mean, they, they have what's called uh, fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence, and fluid intelligence is rapidity of response, uh, the quickness of your response, how quickly the information comes to you and all this. And that's not quite, that, that does fall off as you get older. That's why when you turn on Jeopardy, you don't see people 65, 70 years of age on that show. Uh, because they know the information. There's plenty of people that age that know the information. It's the quickness of the response. Mm. But the crystallized intelligence is what stays. And of course, you have to modify it, too. I mean, as you get older, they asked Arthur Rubinstein one time, uh, someone said, well, I guess he was 90, he was still playing, and they said, uh, I heard you 40 years ago, and you're just as good. And he said, not really. He said, uh, certain play pieces I no longer play. He said, secondly, I practice more than I ever did. And he said, third, I play the slow pieces even slower, so when I get to the fast part, then you don't notice the difference. <laughs> so it's selective, uh, op selection, optimization, and compensation. So that's what we all do as we get older. We have to compensate for it, and we figure. So with that in mind, someone called me one night, and they said, guess what? Turn on Jeopardy. I never watched Jeopardy. I said, why should I turn on Jeopardy? Because there's a woman on there that's about well, close to 60 years of age, and she's doing well. I turned it on and she was. She was doing great. But you know how she was doing it? She was waiting for the untimed part of the, of the contest and then she would bet whatever she had. Everything. Uh -huh. So she so was being shrewd. She was, she was using the same thing Rubenstein did. She knew what to do, what the strengths, what the weaknesses were. And she was finally beaten by a younger person who did the same thing. He was winning on the, on the timed wins and then he finally got to the untimed one. He did the same deal. He said, I bet the whole thing. So. Can you, um, I, I'm asking this somewhat rhetorically, but um, can you continue learning as you get older? Yes, you do, and I think you just, it just is a little harder. I mean, it, you have to put in more effort. It's just like Rubenstein said, I, I practice more than I ever did. Man, it's 90s. He said, I practice more now than I ever did. And I, I can notice it, I don't know whether you do, but as you get a little older, you just have to spend a little more time with things that you would have gotten quicker earlier in your life. Uh, it's just part of the, the, part of the uh, maturing brain. I don't use the word aging. <laughs> maturing brain. They always attribute brain. that to laziness. I feel that I'm <laughs> lazier now. That's right. Um, but a question that has a sort of political um, component to it, which is um, I, I, I've always been interested in, in some of the ways your brain gets stuck on something. For instance, the music you hear as a kid. Yes. You can sing the lyrics from any song you knew when you were a teenager. But I also notice that most people, as, that, as they get older, become more resistant to new experiences. Yes. It's almost a defensive thing. Now, and they'll say, well, the music today isn't as good as it was when I was a kid. And you think, well, People who are older than you would say that the music they heard when they yeah. were young is better than, you know, I, I don't think that 
popular music is in decline. I, I mm -hmm. feel mm -hmm. like there's the, a way in which people become rigid mm -hmm. as they're older and they don't want new experiences and they almost find it harder to take in anything new. Is that a, a function of the brain or is it just um, being uncomfortable with newness? I mean, and I, I, I would say that I think this, I'm saying this anecdotally, mm -hmm. but I think there is absolutely the case that you yes. find people rejecting out of hand new yeah. experiences as they get older. Well, I think you get an engram. You get a, a model in the brain of what music should sound like, for instance, uh, what popular music should be. And um, that's set there, and that's what you judge other things by. So that's the rigidity that you're talking about. Which you're so you have to force yourself to be open to new, new ways of listening to music, learning about music, and of course one of the best ways to do it is to take up playing music. Uh, and it's never too late to do that. It's never too late to get to start lessons. And I know a person who's well into his 50s, started to play the piano, and he, he does pretty well. Uh, I mentioned in the book a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author, nonfiction author, who's now taken up uh, drawing. And uh, it's enriched his writing, because now he, I've seen, he actually had shows of his, uh, his charcoal drawings, and they're, they're terrific. So you can, you can do this, force yourself to do it, but you're right. I mean, there's a, a definite uh, tendency to say, well, here we are, that's the way it is, and uh, all these new changes are, uh, are not just the way they should be. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I, I just uh, note it increasingly, and music is such a, a classic um, case, or saying, you know, clothes, I don't understand the, the clothes people wear now. Well, clothing is something that's always yeah. a purely, I mean, there is no ideal way for people to look, but mm -hmm. that, that resistance and the closing down of your um, willingness to experience something new, maybe you've just Well, there are these changes. I mean, uh, there's a book I just finished called Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantle. It won the uh, uh, prize in, in England. I mean, it's very interesting, but she has a, an odd way of using pronouns. She'll have a, a group of men talking, uh, King Henry and, and Cromwell, and, uh, and, and he said, he said, he said, if she, it's done enough that I know she's doing it to, to stimulate your thoughts as who's talking, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's a very different way so that writing, as you know, is changing a lot. People, the way they're, what, they're reading a novel, I mean, I, I mentioned in there that the, <laughs> the Henry James test, where if you're doing video games or something and you're wondering, am I getting <laughs> too so much funny. of it? You, you then read a little bit of the Golden Bowl, and if you think, why, why doesn't it just get to the point? I mean, <laughs> then you've, you've done too much video game. <laughs> I actually thought that was, I was going to try it on myself, but it just made me a little nervous. Cause Do you play video games? Do you like video games? No, yeah, no, yeah. not really. You should try I mean, I, it's funny because I, after reading your book where you're saying that it's actually very stimulating, I mean, I, I like doing things on the computer. I've, I'm not, a, I don't enjoy games that much well what it'll do it'll it'll increase your eye-hand coordination your speed your responsiveness your ability to to be aware of what's happening in the, in the background rather than just center uh, it'll agree your your, your visualization uh, your imagination um, much better than these so-called brain gems because it's kind of interesting uh, the, the problem is that many of the most exciting are the action video games mm -hmm. and if you look at the action video games a lot of them are very violent and taken up with uh, even the 
you know, semblance of real violence. Virginia Tech, there's a game, an underground game about that. So I don't think that's a good thing, but I mean, they're actually making an effort now to make games that are action video games that are not violent. And uh, I think the, in fact, I know that the largest in terms of age, the largest group of people right now turning to the use of video games are people over 50 years of age. But it's, um, it's funny because uh See, that's I, what you were talking about earlier. So you, you have an idea that's only kids play it and all that, but maybe, yeah. yeah. No, when I read that in your book, I yeah, thought, yeah. wow, you know, maybe my mom's actually at home playing yeah. Grand Theft Auto, and I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm very um, curious about whether you think creativity can continue to grow, or is, you know, there's... Um, there are writers and artists who work well into their dotage. Mm -hmm. um, and it may be that some of the writers and artists and musicians simply um, decide that they've done enough and they don't continue working, not because they're not able mm -hmm. to, but because mm -hmm. they simply want to do, have a different life or a quieter mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious whether there's a point at which you simply can't do it anymore. And, Put aside disease, mm -hmm. Alzheimer's, something mm -hmm. like that. I mean, is there a spark that that doesn't fire anymore? Is there a finite amount of creativity that um, that you're mm. sort of privileged to have, and you no. spend it, and then it's gone? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I think it varies with what we're talking about. We talk about math and music. Most of the people that have created uh, mathematicians, original mathematicians, even some original physicists, they're young. They get older, they don't come up with... Uh, now, there, there are exceptions to that, of course, but uh, in general, um, I think it's a mix of things. I think certain people, they've said all they have to say on something thing. They're, they're not getting something new. Uh, some people have written, as Samuel Johnson said, someone that writes except for what money they make is a foolish person. He, had, he said it more elegantly than that, but his point being that. Uh, so some people, they may just simply have achieved all the various things they want to achieve in life, and they just simply want to enjoy it, and they don't continue to write. It's all very mm -hmm. variable. And then there are people who have this drive for it. And so I think it's healthy, but sometimes it's not so healthy in terms of the personal life, family life, and all that, and they just continue this to the uh, extent of, um, you know, shutting out other people and all that. So there's a lot of different variations of it. Do you think um, that... You know, this is something that comes up a lot. I mean, a lot of writers worry that they've sort of been granted, say, a hundred thousand. Well, that's too few. Let's say uh, a million words, mm. and if they spend it on silly things, their Facebook status updates. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I. I God knows, I don't believe that. But yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> that you're spending capital that you you can't get back. And I've often thought, well, that's absurd. I think you're just exercising a part of your brain that the more you use it, the better it'll work. But of course, it's a it's a real question. You know, is it that you wear out, or is it that what's wearing out maybe is your desire to do it? Is it absurd to think that you wear out or use up some, some quota of brain power? Well, there's a lot of things in, in packaged in that question. I mean, you know, a contemporary example, what's going to happen? How's Tiger Woods going to do when he comes back, hasn't played golf in some time in a highly competitive area? 
So it would be interesting to see, because if the idea he comes back to number one, then it really is a very strong argument for some sort of an innate mm -hmm. ability. Whereas uh, if it takes a couple of years for him to do it, or maybe he doesn't do it at all. But taking another sporting uh, analogy, I mean, it would be a little bit like uh, you saying, well, if I write something, uh, overwrite my million words or whatever, like having a boxer who's a champion and he doesn't hardly ever fights. He says, oh, I'm just going to fight every two years. Is it likely he's going to? I don't think so. I mean, because mm -hmm. you just need to keep doing that in order to stay sharp at it because mm -hmm. you just can't, you can't do it. So I think the same thing would be with the brain. I, I don't think anybody's, perhaps they might pick up bad habits, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. uh, they might, but they probably, I don't think anybody's going to say, well, I wish I hadn't started that blog because now I can't write any books. Right. <laughs> Well, I, I fall on the side of um, you're exercising something that needs to keep, that the more you, I mean, you set up more challenges for yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And certainly there's the question of your own drive and desire, but it does seem that your ability to see and think and process what you're seeing and, and create a, an interesting narrative from it is something that would only get better if you practice it regularly. That would be my view, too. I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Go do that Facebook status update and feel relieved. Um, when we are... Oh, I want to check our time. We're, are we, we're okay. Um, you mentioned that Alzheimer's is a disease and it's sort mm -hmm. of a separate matter. Otherwise, in the course of your brain maturing, and I will mm -hmm. adopt that word now because it sounds so much nicer, <laughs> um, are the, the edges going to get rounded off no matter what, even if you're not suffering from... Uh, you know, clinical dementia or, or Alzheimer's? Well, just as I mentioned, just in case of the, the speed of response, things like that, the crystallized intelligence, the amount of information you know will continue to grow, which creates a problem because the workplace now is composed of four different generations with a strong, silent type, anybody born before 1946, and then the baby boomers, 46, then the Generation X, then Generation Y. Because of the economy, all four of these groups of people are thrown into each other in an organization. Whereas look at the differences of opinion and how they operate. The strong, silent type, they have a great respect for authority, authoritarian organizations, uh, dressing up. It's sort of like uh, the Mad Men, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> watching them, even watching that show. And then you move on and then you get down to Generation X or Y. I mean, they're very informally dressed. They don't have any respect for authority. Don't put it, I sound like a strong, silent type. Uh, they're not comfortable with an authoritarian uh, group of uh, people. So you throw them all together in a workplace, it requires a certain flexibility. Now, the older person will have this organized knowledge, this crystallized knowledge. In fact, that's the way of guaranteeing being able to maintain your position in the workplace, knowing, to put it at its simplest, knowing things that other people don't know or can't do mm -hmm. because you've really become that much of an expert on this thing. Whereas there's sneaky and there's ways no of, reason to think that just by aging you're going to start, that will erode. 
No, not in, this, in the context of without any kind of uh, intervening brain disease. No, you can continue to build up this knowledge. If you go into a law firm, for instance, with a complicated law uh, problem, I mean, you may be sitting there with the latest graduate from Harvard who's now you know, the number one in the class, but he's going to be there with one of the senior people because mm -hmm. of the experience that this fellow has as he listens to this tale because he has so much experience, so many other cases, it reminds him of things. So you've got this, this knowledge industry, if you will, of having built this up over the years. Mm -hmm. So there is, uh, aside from people who are suffering from um, particular decline in their, the way their brain functions, there's no reason to feel that you're going to be falling behind or sort of Well, there's ways it. that you can keep up, as we mentioned. There's, uh, just don't put yourself into a combative time uh, frame, a time competitive situation in terms of coming up with answers quickly, doing things quickly, because you're not going to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you'll certainly know the information. So it's a matter, just like with Rubenstein, of, of looking at limitations, selecting the problem, optimizing and compensating for it. And that's the part of healthful aging and longevity. One of the things people don't know too much about is finger dexterity. I mean, uh, with the exceptions of musicians and surgeons, very few people are very dexterous with their hands. Yet there's a linkage between longevity and the warding off of uh, dementias with you know, high uh, ability to agility with fingers and hands. You mean it's, it's a, if you work on dexterity, mm -hmm. it affects your... Yes, for some reason. Now, you look at the, a picture of the brain and there's a huge amount of the brain, you know, that's devoted to the hand. Really? So that when you're doing anything with wow. your hand, learning a coin trick, doing something that, uh, making a model, uh, something like that, it's stimulating that part of the brain, which is really not much stimulated. Just think of it, we all have a brain up here with large percentage of it. You can look at the diagram of the hand, particularly the thumb and the first finger. Uh, yet, very few people are involved in things that uh, challenge that. So you have to take that up. That's interesting because there's a whole uh, movement of people advocating for more handwork. Mm -hmm. but, uh, although it, it's funny, even though maybe people aren't rebuilding engines and mm -hmm. building boats in glass bottles anymore, but people are work, doing so much on keyboards with computers, it's, maybe that's not dexterity, or, or is it? Because well, I, I feel it's, like... It's typing, I mean, you're doing, but I mean, yeah. you're thinking of something that would be a little more challenging. I mean, learning... Sewing. To, well, well, actually, uh, European men are, are taken up with um, sewing and uh, things like that. It's not done much here. Um, other, other things that have to do with learning in a a task that, well, like we talked about music, learning to play a musical instrument, taking that up later in life, was certainly put an emphasis on using the hand. There's definitely a linkage between that. Uh, schools aren't much taken up with it at any level. Um, I mentioned a young uh, not, a man in, in the book who's an information specialist who spends his time doing carpentry. And he, uh, when he has something complicated, he calls in a professional and he takes the day off and watches them and learns, things like that. And he's careful not to use dangerous instruments. The idea is not to, you know, lose a finger to learn how to make <laughs> But just to increase. So the other thing, we have this idea that all knowledge is uh, based on uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic rather than doing. I mentioned in there college professors are uncomfortable with the idea that the man who's servicing their Lexus may be smarter than them. But 
What, um, one thing I've been very curious about, there was a really interesting story in the New Yorker some years ago about a kid who was super, super intelligent. He had a, a, an IQ that was off the charts, and sadly, he had a lot of emotional problems. He ended up committing suicide. Mm. Um, mm. But what was interesting is both of his, he was smarter than either parent. Mm-hmm. So is that just a fluke of uh, biology that he ends, or, or what is, also, um, in the case, neither of his parents were highly educated. And he looked like the parents, and so. Yeah, I mean, there was no question. He, he didn't look like the UPS man. Um, but it was, it, both his parents, when they were tested, they had high IQs, yes. but neither of them was very educated, and neither had professional jobs. Yes, yes. Um, and it may have been an environmental matter. They just were... They, in one case, if I remember correctly, the father said that it was slightly, he was sort of thought of as a weirdo because he yes. was too smart and it wasn't valued where he grew up, so he certainly yeah. never did anything about it. But it struck me as interesting that they ended up with this child who was smarter than either one. Of course, it raises the question of what smart means. I mean, they recognized that he was smart. He was in a program for, mm-hmm. you know, gifted kids, and he was super smart. He was a genius, and, you know, the story was terrible, actually. But what, what accounts for that? I mean, is it just the same sort of phenomenon where two parents of average height end up with a kid who's... Well, if you can look at animal husbandry, I hate to to use the term, but I mean, there's a thing called a sport where you'll have an animal that's completely different from the others because uh, of some wild genetic element from two or three generations back. I went to school with someone similar to what you're describing. His father was a shoe salesman. His mother has never been employed. He had a brother who was a a carpenter and another brother who never finished school. And, uh, you know, no one... But he was a Woodrow Wilson fellow and uh, various things. So uh, I guess it was just a matter of something. But he, he didn't turn out too well either because there wasn't so different and so unconnected to the, the racial linkage that he would have in a family. So that does happen, yeah. Um, this, of course, that's the saddest case of mm. a, a brain that's too big and mm-hmm. society not really... Um, having a place for him and also emotionally. Yeah, not be able to integrate it, yeah, and integrate him, or himself to integrate into the situation where he was, because yeah. he was there and, uh, you know, he didn't really link with the others in the family. But one other thing you mentioned in your book that I thought was fascinating, oh. which was um, Ronald Reagan. And oh, you yeah. mentioned yeah. that if you watch videotape of him in his yeah. 40s and 50s, he couldn't really answer questions. Not a matter, as yes. you're saying, it's not that he was smart or dumb, but that it was almost as if the beginning yes. of Alzheimer's, looking back on it, you yeah. could say his brain wasn't working. Yeah, it was 1987. Uh, the editor at Outlook had asked me to come in, and uh, he was there with Ben Bradley, and they were concerned about the fact that uh, Lou Cannon kept saying that you know, they were beginning to worry about uh, Reagan because he was, uh, you know, constantly looking at the cards and the three by five index cards he always carried. 
So they said, you know, do you think you could be getting Alzheimer's and all this? So I, I said, well, would you want me to do something? And they said, yes. So I went to a press conference and watched and, you know, wasn't, you know, Reagan was a very interesting person. I mean, he was able to, you know. So I thought, well, it, it doesn't seem to be. So then I went and I got the transcripts when he was the president of the Motion Picture Association uh, and he was at the hearings and he was testifying as the president of this. And uh, same thing, uh, well, he, he had three by five index cards and he, he didn't remember this and he didn't remember that and all that. So, this, so I said, well, I don't think he, if he did, he was like this and he was 51 years old. He went from that to president of the United States, so we can't make these things. Yet, as we know, he went on and did have. So it comes to the question about when does something like Alzheimer's start? Now, bearing in mind that Alzheimer's is a disease, they have this thing called ApoE3, which is a form of an enzyme in, in, the, in the brain. And that's highly associated with Alzheimer's. And they have children, you know, that have this, and they kept saying, are they going to develop Alzheimer's? Well, fortunately, you can look at the population of people who, who are older and they have ApoE3. They don't have anything like Alzheimer's. They're doing fine. One of, one of the concepts that I mentioned is the, the cognitive reserve, which fits into this. We've been talking about this sort of during the evening, about building up knowledge. And you think about a cognitive reserve as like a monetary reserve. You've been saving money all your life and you've got, let's say, a couple million dollars. Well, you'd have to be hit pretty hard to be wiped out financially, assuming you're living a reasonable life span, I mean a reasonable lifestyle. Whereas somebody who has very little doesn't require too much for something to, to be sort of out, of out of their funds. Same thing with, with uh, cognitive reserve. It was discovered that there are certain people that died who appeared to be had a normal life or even above normal in terms of achievement, but they had findings of Alzheimer's on autopsy. So they went yeah. back and they said, what do these people have in common? And they found that they had high education. So education has this protective effect. And I mentioned, well, why would it be limited to formal education? I mean, I had a patient in just the other day who I mentioned in the book, but he just happened to come in uh, the day before yesterday. He's in his 80s and uh, he finished the eighth grade. He's a millionaire and he was a real estate person. And, He's very clever and smart and all this. So, I mean, uh, he, there's an example of uh, cognitive reserve building up over the years. Education, learning about properties and all this. Didn't have to do it in a, didn't go to any school to do it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I guess the bottom line of it is that the education that's protective seems to be protective against Alzheimer's. It doesn't have to be formal education. Because people will say, well, it's too late for me. So, in other words, the taking in of information, yes. the exercising of this organ yes. is, uh, in whether it's in a formal setting or whether it's just that you're a person who goes out and learns, is one way to build that reserve that's going to protect you even yeah, if... Yeah, the things that are most related to are, a bit, uh, are what's called working memory, which is probably the most important aspect of maintaining brain function. If you had to think of one thing, it would be working memory. And working memory differs from ordinary memory, like uh, if I were to say to you, for instance, well, name all the presidents from Obama back to, let's say, FDR. So that's memory. You know, you just say, oh, let's see, Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and on. That's general memory. But if I say to you, well, just name the Democrats. Don't name the Republicans. Hmm. And you've got to keep them in mind, skip a couple people, then I might say, well, just tell me the Republicans. Start with Bush and go back. Don't mention any Democrats. That's working memory. You're manipulating the information. Make it even harder and say, well, let's name the presidents alphabetically. 
from Obama back to FDR. Now suddenly Eisenhower moves close to the front because in the other ways he was either not mentioned at all or he was uh, towards the end. So that's manipulating information and that's working memory and that's correlated with intelligence at every age. Children who can do that are smarter and people can enhance their IQ by trying to develop that. And there's exercises I mentioned, take a bunch of quarters, dimes, nickels and pennies, spread them on a table and you say, well, why don't you add those up, Susan, and tell me how much they are? So you would probably, like most people, just you know, add them up and as you're doing it. But working memory would be to add up the things, just not, not in any particular rate, just pick a coin and say, oh, that's a quarter, then you've got to register that. Oh, that's a nickel, register that. And you're maintaining four different registers. So at the end, you add them up and say a total such and such. You have to start with two. You have to, and then you can go to three, and no one has ever gone beyond four, because a famous paper, about four is the upper limit of anybody's been able to do this. So, uh, which is interesting, it may have something to do with the casinos, where they, I think they've stopped at four decks. <laughs> they you know, can card count beyond that, which I could imagine that would be, most people can't card count, myself included, one deck. <laughs> yeah, that's what I, I worry about myself, because I've been trying to learn how to play poker, and I still can't count, I yeah. can't keep track of, the suits, and I've thought, yeah. all right, it's the beginning of the end for me. It's yeah, well, <laughs> keep, keep at it. Same thing with bridge. I haven't taken up bridge. I mean, that's probably, if someone said, what particular game or thing is most associated, and then bridge is the one. There's a famous story about a neurologist and his wife who were very good bridge players, and he was at a nursing home one day, and one of the nurses mentioned, well, you know, Mr. So-and-so used to play bridge, and his wife was, he said, oh, really, does he play now? No, no. So nobody to play with. Where's his wife? Well, she was in another nursing home. So he had the idea. He got this couple together, and then he and his wife got together with them. And now these were demented, you know, severe enough to be in a uh, nursing center, but they still could do the bridge. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, um, so maybe I'll be playing poker when yeah. I'm in a nursing home. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a nonprofit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.